Well, this morning I was actually contemplating starting off with a, a movie clip, which is not something that I have ever done and not something that is uh, typical in this church. Um, but I couldn't find that movie clip, so we're not going to be looking at it. Uh, this was a, a movie that came out a few years ago, and it was a movie that was targeted at uh, people like you and me, people who are believers, people who uh, hold true to the Word of God. And uh, whenever I look at or, or view these kind of movies, movies that are based on the Bible or have biblical themes, I have to confess that I am really uh, hypercritical of what they say and how they say it. And this movie that came out a few years ago, The, the Apostle Paul was the name of it. I'm sure that having been targeted to our demographic, many of you have seen it. Uh, I don't really remember too much of it, to be honest. But being the hypercritical person that I am, especially with those type of movies, the one thing that I do remember was my main criticism from the movie. And that is that at some point, uh, and remind you, I, I looked for this clip, I couldn't find this clip, so I don't have a, a direct quote for you, but at some point, they portrayed the Apostle Paul as saying something along the lines of, well, I, I really wasn't trying to convince you. I really am not trying to, to persuade people. And that really caught me off guard. I was wondering while I was watching that if they were talking about the same Apostle Paul that we read about in the Bible, the Apostle Paul who is so bold and unashamed for the gospel of God. He is um, not really worried about stepping on people's toes. He's not really apologetic about the message that he preaches. And even beyond that, he has this great, great deep abiding passion for the gospel. That is his driving force in life to share the gospel with those who are lost and dying. And I absolutely think that he was uh, trying to convince people. He was trying to persuade people. We see that even here in our passage, that he is trying to persuade people with the message of the gospel. And as, as strong of a passion as the gospel is for, for Paul, as strong of a, a motivation as the gospel is for him, this motivation really stems out of a, an even deeper motivation, a, a primary motivation that we have for Paul, or that Paul has rather for God. And if we look back in, in verse 9, we can see Paul talking about that uh, really deep abiding uh, motivation that drives his life. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That is what really spurred Paul on. That's what drove him to, to live, to, to do his ministry. It was his amb ambition, his deep passion, that whatever he does, whether at home, in the body, whether absent, that he would be pleasing to the Lord. That is an amazing goal for, for every Christian. That should be everybody's foundational uh, goal and, and driving motive in life, that we should seek to be pleasing to God in, in whatever we're doing, whatever path God has set you on, and whatever uh, different goals and desires, aspirations you have in life. All of those should flow secondarily out of this primary goal to, uh, to please God in everything that we do. And you'll remember from our, our study last week that Paul goes on in the next verse, in verse 10, to talk about how we as Christians, we're going to be set before the Lord one day uh, for judgment, that we are going to stand before him for judgment. Now, I'll remind you that this judgment isn't in reference to uh, whether or not we are in Christ or out of Christ, whether or not we're going to go to heaven or hell. That's already been decided by this point. If you are 
in Christ, then you will be standing before him one day in this Bema seat judgment. And he goes on in verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this is really a, a sober reality that while we are we're not yet home, right? We haven't been given this, this house that Paul was talking about earlier on in the passage. We're still in this, this earthly tent, still in this earthly body, yet we're not here on vacation, are we? We're here with a, a goal and a purpose, and we will give an account for the, the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. We are going to stand before Christ one day, and we're going to give an account for the way that we lived as Christians. Again, not for salvation, but for our rewards before Christ. And last week, to, to close out the service, Andy came up here, and he was uh, really transparent with us. And he said, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of scared for that day. I'm a little bit fearful for that day. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we can all kind of relate with that, that uh, that would be a, there would be a, a level of fear associated with standing before the Lord of glory and having our, our deeds laid bare before the, the King of Kings. Well, Paul goes on, he expresses a, a similar fear here in the, the next verse, in the following verse, in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. So if you and if you're like me and Andy, and you have a little bit of fear for that day, uh, that's a good thing to have a fear for the fact that, once again, we're going to stand before the Lord of glory. And that should draw us to this reverential fear, to have this uh, reverence, this appreciation for who Jesus is. That he is, in fact, the, the Lord, that he is the king. And uh, all of our deeds are going to be laid bare. They're going to be manifested before him. And... Uh, Paul here, again, he, he mentions it too, that he's going to have this, this same fear. And he goes on to say that this fear of the Lord um, is really what persuades him or what motivates him to persuade men. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So this fear is causing Paul to want to persuade other men. So uh, again, don't Tell me that the Apostle Paul didn't try to persuade men, that he didn't try to uh, influence and convince men. The Apostle who set aside his life for ministry to the gospel, the Apostle who went on multiple missionary journeys, certainly he was trying to persuade these men. He uh, wanted to have an effective ministry towards these people that he was reaching out to, this uh, group of people that he was writing to, that he was ministering amongst. Remember that he said of himself, he said, I would wish myself accursed or cut off for the sake of his brethren, for the sake of his kinsmen. And that's in reference to the, the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people, not even talking about those who he has been sent out and commissioned to go to, those that he has this deep passion to, to go out and serve, being the apostle to the Gentiles. That was Paul's mission. And we could look forward, and we will hear in a few months and look at chapter 11, and we could see uh, the great lengths that Paul went to in his uh, desire to convince people of the gospel of Christ, that he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned, he went through all these things because he wanted to persuade and convince people of the gospel. That was his, his heartbeat. That is what drove Paul as a missionary. 
he wanted to persuade men to be reconciled to God. We read that a little bit later in verse 20, that that is not only Paul's goal, his, uh, his ambition in life to persuade people to be reconciled to God, that is the goal of all Christians, that we should encourage people. You need to be reconciled to God. We have something in between us and God. We have our sin that is separating us from a holy God. And so Paul's heartbeat was, again, as a missionary to convince people to be reconciled to God. However, to do this effectively, Paul had to first persuade men that he was a a trustworthy and reliable source of information, that he was a man of integrity rather than a man of hypocrisy. If the people he was writing to, they didn't trust him, they didn't think that what he was saying was worthy of uh, actually receiving, that it was a trustworthy statement, then the message that he was proclaiming wouldn't be received either. And so Paul here, he sort of jumps into a, a defense, um, seeking to defend himself from the attacks, from um, being discredited or undermined by uh, people who were seeking to influence the Corinthians. Remember, we've talked about talked before about uh, the the struggle that was going on here in Corinth, especially during the second letter, this actually fourth letter that Paul is writing, this letter of 2 Corinthians. There are people who are seeking to uh, impact and influence the Corinthians, people that Paul calls uh, false teachers. He calls them super apostles, just kind of mocking them, saying, oh, these, these super apostles, you know, they're, they're so great. They're um, teaching these false things to the, the brethren at, at Corinth trying to dissuade them from listening to Paul. And while Paul, at at one point, had uh, the heart of the Corinthians, they respected Paul, they they loved Paul, and they would listen to Paul and submit to Paul, that is being challenged by these other super apostles. These other apostles, they are um, competing for the heart of the Corinthians, and they're doing so by Uh, just planting little seeds of doubt and seeds of deception within the hearts of the Corinthians. And so Paul is writing to them, uh, particularly in chapter 2 and chapter 7, but here I think we get a little glimpse of that too, that Paul is trying to defend not only himself, but more importantly, he's trying to defend the gospel that he is preaching to these people. And so uh, if we continue reading in verse 11... It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So Paul really wants uh, to uh, appeal to the consciences of the, the Corinthians. He wants them to know his great love for them, his compassion, his concern for them. Not only that he has a, a heart for them, but that it's a heart of sincerity, that Paul is speaking truth to them, that he wants them to uh, be able to embrace and accept what he is saying to them as true. We know that uh, Paul is concerned with the truth. He wants to know the truth himself. He wants to preach the truth correctly. And Paul is convinced that he has a, a clear conscience before these men. If we turn back and we look at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 12, Paul says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. 
So Paul's able to say we've conducted ourselves with godliness and sincerity. Not just out there, not just in the world, but even towards you. We've conducted ourselves with love and with sincerity. You should be able to take what we're preaching and receive it. You should be able to embrace it as truth. And Paul doesn't only have a a clear conscience himself. At the end of this verse, he says that he is appealing to their consciences, wanting them to know that they can truly trust him, that they can embrace this message that he is saying. This is very important to Paul, that they be able to embrace the message of the gospel. Now, it's one thing to say that you have a, a clear conscience before men. Uh, that is, that's a high bar, even to be able to say, oh, I have a clear conscience. That is a good thing, but not always easy. That is a, a worthy goal to seek to have, to have a clear conscience, no matter what you're doing. But Paul is able to say that even before the Lord, he has a clear conscience. Uh, back in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, Paul says just this, Acts 24, 16. He says, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. You see, Paul knows that uh, it is not him who uh, judges his heart, but it's the Lord. He is the one who examines the heart. And Paul is able to say, he has a clear conscience before God, even though God is able to, to look at his heart and examine his heart. Uh, not just the outward stuff, but God, knowing his heart, is still uh, able to say that Paul is sincere, that Paul is trustworthy. <laughs> there is, again, a lot of value in having a clear conscience. That is a, a great thing to have a clear conscience. People can take all kinds of stuff from you. You could be... Uh, homeless out on the the side of a curb, not having a penny to your name, but you could still have a clear conscience. And I wanted to share from you from Job, the fact that Job had a clear conscience. Job, this man who was in very much that same situation, he had everything stripped away from him. He had every reason to to listen to his wife and to to turn and to curse God and, and die. And yet he didn't. He had a clear conscience. In Job 27, verses 5 and 6, Job said, far be it from me that I should declare you, all of his accusers, right. He said, till I die, I will not put away from my, integ- from my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. <clears throat> so that's a, the kind of attitude, the kind of uh, mentality that, that Paul was able to have. He had the same kind of integrity that Job had, who had a clear conscience. Uh, He says later on in chapter 10, verse 18, that it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but but he whom the Lord commends. He realizes that if he just talks about himself and he just kind of pats himself on the back, that's not going to be adequate enough. That's not going to be good enough for Paul to be proclaiming and speaking the truth. Even Jesus said back in John chapter 5 that if he alone testifies about himself, that his testimony isn't true. And so he went on to give all these other testimonies that the law testifies of him, that the Father testifies of him, he has his miracles, and John the Baptist. Um, But Paul here isn't testifying about himself. He doesn't need to proclaim his own defense, to uh, give himself his his own testimony of his defense. Um, Looking back a couple of chapters, in chapter 3, Paul appealed to 
these same Corinthians that he's writing to now for his defense. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need some, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So Paul's saying, I don't need somebody else to write me a letter to say he's, he's good enough, that he has my stamp of approval. He says, you guys, you Corinthians, you are my stamp of approval. Paul isn't commending himself. He is able to speak um, to those who have a, a knowledge of his track record. They have a knowledge of his integrity, that he doesn't have to lean on other people for that kind of hope. And C.K. Barrett writes about Paul, and he says that Paul is doubtless well aware that he is doing, that what he is doing must look very much like self-commendation. Indeed, it is self-commendation in the sense that he is representing himself as a faithful and trustworthy preacher of the true gospel. That's really the, the main point. Paul isn't concerned with himself, with how people look at him. He's not looking to gain any kind of uh, reputation or any kind of popularity. That's not what Paul is concerned about. Paul's chief concern is the reputation of the gospel. He doesn't want the truth of his message to be undermined because these super apostles, these false apostles are talking to the Corinthians and saying, this man is untrustworthy. You can't trust that man. You can't believe anything that he says. He doesn't even have a, a letter of commendation. Paul was worried, again, not about his own personal interests, not about his own fame or uh, fortune or, or well-being. He was concerned about the, the gospel and the reputation of the gospel. Several times in the, the Old Testament, we see that God's calling out Israel, his chosen people, for how they behave, because how they behave reflects upon his character and his name. He doesn't want the, the onlooking nations to think, well, their God must be compromising in, in some way, because look at how they behave, look at how they act. Uh, listen to Ezekiel 20, verses 8 and 9. And it says, But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Now catch this, he's going to give the reason why, his motivation. He says, But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. So God here was, again, punishing Israel because their actions reflected poorly on his name, on his character. That's why he punished them. And that is what Paul wants to avoid. He doesn't want his message to be tainted by somebody else thinking that he is somehow operating in some kind of underhanded, slighted way. And so he wants to make this known to them. Read with me back in 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll look at verse 12. He says, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Again, Paul was concerned primarily with the gospel. He is helping the Corinthians here to be able to, to structure and to articulate a defense so that when these false pro apostles, uh, false prophets come to them, um, they're not taken captive by, by empty philosophy, by worldly 
deception, according to the traditions of man, according to the, the principles, the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. That's not what Paul wants or desires for them. Uh, Paul wanted to destroy speculations, to destroy every lofty thing that was raised up against the knowledge of God, so that they, the Corinthians, would be able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He wanted them to be prepared. He wanted them to have a defense. Even though they should already be defending Paul, their beloved apostle, their, their friend who lived with them for a year and a half, um, Paul is now enabling them to be able to have a defense against these uh, hypocritical false apostles. Did you catch that at the end of verse 12? He says, I'm, I'm doing this for you so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Again, those super apostles who were more concerned with their, their outward appearance than with the inward appearance. They're very much akin to the Pharisees that Jesus spoke against who were just a bunch of whitewashed tombs, right? On the inside, they're a bunch of dead, rotting bones. But the outside looks great, right? The, the outside of the tomb, the tombstone's all nice and painted, and so everything's fine. Or uh, he also compared the, the Pharisees to a, a cup that's dirty on the inside, filthy on the inside. But it's all right because the outside is clean. That's kind of the, the mentality that the, the Pharisees had. That's kind of the mentality that these false apostles, these super apostles have. That as long as everything looks okay on the outside, then we're good. We're golden. And Paul's saying, no, that's, that's not the case. You guys, you Corinthians, you're dealing with these people who are more concerned with outward appearances than with inward appearances. And that's an issue. These people who are just moralists, right? These, these legalists who want to look good even though their heart hasn't been changed, even though their heart hasn't been affected. And it can be really easy for us to kind of judge and, and condemn that. Uh, but this is an issue that's just as pervasive in our society today, even in our own hearts, that we have a, a tendency, a desire really towards legalism, towards moralism, to, to want to do what's right. Just, just give me a list, right? Just tell me what to do and, and I'll do those things. Uh, rather than having our heart change, rather than having God really work within us, we have this, this tendency towards just this, these outward appearances. As long as we can do what's right on the outside, then we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're right with God. There are plenty of groups that are willing to give us that list today, right? Plenty of people, plenty of groups that are willing to say, well, you want a list? Here's your list. Just follow the rules, follow the instructions. That's not adequate. That's insufficient. And Paul didn't want that for the people that he was writing to, these Corinthians that he loved. He doesn't want them to, uh, to fall into that trap of just settling for a list of rules, settling for, for moralism, settling for legalism. And Paul himself, he said that uh, according to righteousness, he, that his righteousness, according to the law, he was found blameless. Nobody could really come to him and say, well, you've broken this law, this law, or this law. But he knew that inwardly, he was a, a wicked, wretched man, that he was the chief of sinners because God isn't concerned with our, our outward appearances. God is concerned with our heart. And again, uh, Paul knew that that wasn't sufficient for the Corinthians. He wanted them to be uh, grounded in the truth. And he knew that they were easily swayed by such legalistic type tendencies uh, because they were, remember, immature. He 
called them back in 1 Corinthians, uh, babes in the faith. He said that while they should be eating meat, they're still uh, suckling babies. They're just living on milk. They're not adequate to, uh, to really care for themselves. And so Paul is taking this role upon himself to care for, for them. And this warning of hypocrisy, it really should serve as a warning of what we should not do and also a reminder of what others will do. This desire to be outwardly clean without really checking our heart, making sure that we are inwardly right before God. Well, Paul moves on in, in verse 13, and he takes a little bit of a turn here. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. And Paul here is speaking about his demeanor, how he comes across to people. He says um, that before God, um, you might think that we are beside ourselves. You might think that we're crazy, is what the, the NLT says. Like we don't usually reference the NLT here. They take some liberty sometimes. But uh, that translation says that Paul was crazy. This word actually means, uh, speaks of in- excitement or enthusiasm. They saw that Paul was excited for God. That um, Outwardly, he, he kind of appeared to be a little bit nuts. And uh, surely here, Paul is uh, responding to more criticisms raised by the super apostles. Uh, you're not going to believe that, that crazy nut job Paul, right? He's always out there making a fool of himself, acting all wild and crazy. Well, Paul didn't have a problem being seen as, as foolish. In fact, here in a couple chapters, in chapter 11, he's going to say, uh, just go ahead and, and receive me as foolish. Let me just, let me uh, brag on myself here for a little bit. We're in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. Again, talking about how he shouldn't have to defend himself. He said, you should have been commending me. But in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. When I read this, this verse talking about how Paul um, kind of appears to be crazy, he appears to be beside himself, he appears to be nuts before these people, I immediately thought back to David as David was dancing before the Lord. Let me just remind you of that, that story. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, uh, says, So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the trumpet. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, his wife, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window, and she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she was dis- she despised him in her heart. So David dancing and really showing himself. He's just worshiping the Lord. And his own wife says, that guy is nuts. That guy is crazy. Uh, going on a few verses. In verse 20, she actually approaches him. It says, but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. You sense the sarcasm? You're so distinguished dancing around out there. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, in the eyes of his servants' maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, listen to David's response to her. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father 
and above all his household to appoint me ruler over the peoples of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. That's one of my favorite verses. That's pretty great. Um, <laughs> it says, I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. So David says, no, I'm actually, I'm distinguished with those maids that you think are looking down on me. You go ahead and look down on me because the, this is my house, right? This is my kingdom that God took away from your daddy and he gave it to me. Uh, David was viewed by the people as somebody who was uh, shameful, right? He was viewed as somebody who was insane, and he was okay with that. Uh, Jesus himself, we've been going through Mark on Sundays. In Mark 3.21, it says about Jesus' family. It says when his own people, his family, heard about what Jesus was doing, his selfless um, service before the people, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying that he, Jesus, has lost his senses. Jesus was being so selfless and serving his people so uh, carelessly, not even taking time for himself to eat, that his family said, he's got to be insane. He's got to be crazy. We have to go get him and put him in the nut house. And Jesus just kept serving. He kept um, being selfless and, and loving on his people. And now Paul is coming under these same accusations that, that David and, and Jesus, the son of David, found themselves coming under, saying, he's crazy. This guy is nuts. But Paul says, um, that if we are beside ourselves, if we are crazy, it is for God. We're, we're crazy for God, for what he has done for us. And then he, he goes on, he says, but if we are of sound mind, or if we are sane, then it is for your sake, or it is for you. Back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul mentioned the fact that the Corinthians, they had all kinds of tutors. They had all kinds of people who would teach them and advise them. They were really... Uh, just collectors of people who could influence them and, and teach them. But it says that uh, Paul was certainly one of those teachers, one of those tutors, but he went beyond that. Not only was he a tutor to them, he was a father to them, to the point that he could say, I want you guys to, to imitate me, because he was a father figure to them. Here in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 7, in verse 3, Paul says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul saying, I care about you. You're in my heart. Again, we see his, his love for these people. He goes on in verse 14. He says, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. So not only did Paul have a, a care and concern for these people, he was boasting to Titus about them, telling Titus how great these people were. And you and I have read through 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, they don't seem that great to me. But he's boasting to Titus, telling them, no, I, I love these people. These people are great. And it says there in 2 Corinthians seven fourteen that Paul spoke to them in truth. So Paul was maybe a little bit insane before God. He was kind of crazy, kind of nuts like David, because he was really responding to the love and the grace of God. But it says, before you, we were, we were sane. We spoke in a way that was intelligible. We spoke in a way that you could understand. Not only that, we did so with love and compassion. You should accept our message. You should accept the truth of what we're saying. 
And he even goes on to explain why they should accept the truth of what he's saying. In verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. He is absolutely controlled by Christ's love for him. And that love pours out to the Corinthians. They are affected by the love that, um, that Paul has for Christ. There's actually a little bit of um, ambiguity here in the text. It's not clear as, um, as to whether or not it's saying that the, the love that Christ has for Paul or the love that Paul has for Christ. Um, but really, this could be an intentional ambiguity because the only reason that Paul loves Christ is because Christ first loved Paul, because Christ died for Paul, because Christ uh, came and, and met Paul on that road to Damascus. And that really is what spurs on the love that Paul has for Christ. And now Paul is here saying that this is what motivates us, the love of Christ both the, the love that, that he has for, for Paul and the love that Paul has for Christ, that's a motivation for Paul to go out to minister to these people to persuade them to embrace the truth of his gospel message. We see that uh, gratitude is a far greater motivator than fear or, or than, than law or obedience. It's not law or obedience that draws Paul to... Uh, to share this message, but gratitude because of the, the love of Christ. And that's why he takes this and, and shares this message with the Corinthian people. And he goes on here, and he's going to actually have a little bit of a, a theological parenthesis here. He's going to just kind of jump into some theology kind of randomly. In the midst of his polemic, the defense of himself uh, and the gospel message, he's going to bring up some uh, great theology here. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so we see here uh, just how naturally this theology flows out of Paul. That he's, he's defending himself, and right in the midst of that, he says, oh yeah, there's this this great theological truth. Let me just drop this bomb on you right here in the midst of this conversation. It was so natural for him. It was once said about uh, Charles Spurgeon that you go ahead and, and prick him and he bleeds bibline that um, the, the very essence of the Bible flows straight out of him. And that could certainly be said of, of Paul who jumped straight into doctrine. Uh, we have to realize that theology is not divorced from love that he's, he's here speaking about love and how the love of Christ controls him, and then he jumps into this theology. I think we have this kind of twisted concept in our mind that love is, is warm and accepting and embracing. Um, it's tolerant, just unquestionably tolerant, right? To the point where we might say um, that, oh, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not trying to persuade you, right? That kind of warm love. And we have this other misconceived idea that theology is just kind of cold and it's off-putting. But here we see uh, Paul using, um, jumping into theology and persuading these people and evangelizing these people. So theology and persuasion and evangelism, they're not only uh, cohesive with love, but they are rooted and grounded in love. These two things aren't uh, opposed to each other, but they go together, speaking the truth in love. And these two verses here, verses 14 and 15, they are, uh, they've kind of been thrust into the center of 
an in-house debate or in-house discussion um, on the scope of the atonement. They've been kind of viewed as the linchpin for this debate on the scope of the atonement. And so I want to spend several minutes kind of contrasting these two different uh, perspectives that Christians have on the scope of the atonement. So we're going to kind of like Paul did, we're going to take a little bit of a detour and talk some theology here for a moment. So if you're taking notes, you might want to draw a little box around this next section or use a different color pen um, as we talk about um, these two different groups and how they view atonement. So on this one side, you have those who hold to uh, a limited atonement or a particular redemption. And people over here will say, well, who did Jesus die for? He died only for the church, only for the elect only for those who are saved in him. And then you have a, a different group of people over here who say, well, no, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. And these two different groups, as I said, are opposed to each other. They uh, have a different view of the scope of the atonement, of who it is that Jesus actually died for. And so those who are over here on this side, those who hold to a limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect, they'll look at verse 14 and they'll say that whenever it says all, it's speaking only of the church. So when it says that one died for all, therefore all died, but that's speaking of the church. And it's actually even qualified in verse 15 when it goes on and it says that he died for all so that they who might live, or they who live might no longer live for themselves. So they who live actually qualifies that, and it's saying that Jesus only died for the church. That's where the, the limited atonement person would, would land. Whereas others would say that all here refers to the world. And then Paul limits the group further in verse 15, um, that in verse 15, he's limiting the all to those who live. Well, we can't make the mistake of just taking one verse in Scripture and isolating it from the rest of Scripture. We never want to do that. Um, or using one verse or one group of verses to uh, undermine the, the rest of Scripture, to kind of supersede the rest of Scripture. God has communicated to us very clearly in His Word. And it is our job to submit to His Word, to conform our understanding, to conform our theology to what it is that God has revealed to us in his word. Not taking certain verses that we have a hard time with or we disagree with and just discarding them, but rather seeking to harmonize them with one another as we look at the Bible as a whole. So let's consider first several of the favorite verses of the, the limited atonement position. Those who say that Jesus died only for the elect. Uh, the limited atonement group, they will often refer to John 10, verse 11. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's speaking of the church, right? So, hmm, that's interesting. All right, Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, those verses might seem pretty conclusive, right? That Jesus died for the sheep, that Christ gave himself up for the church, so clearly Christ died for the church. Well, those who maintain that Jesus died for everybody over here, they can read those verses and uh, say, yeah, of course Christ died for his sheep. Of course died, Christ died for his church. Amen. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I can fully embrace that truth, that Christ died for um, 
for the church, for the elect. And not only did Christ die for the elect, but he died for them in a very special way, that he uh, justified them with his death, that he redeemed them with his death, that he has secured salvation for the elect. But then they'll turn and they'll say to the limited atonement person who says that Christ only died for the church, and they'll say, well, what about 1 John 2, 2? 1 John 2, 2 says, and he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Or Hebrews 2, 9, rather. But, what, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned him of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, let's look at one more. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one Redeemer, or one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And so looking at these verses, again, realizing that we don't want to take our, our favorite verses and use them to supersede other verses, that uh, rather what we want to do is... Um, harmonize scripture, not discarding certain verses, but harmonizing them together. I think ultimately what we have to do is we have to conclude that Jesus died for more than one reason. Yes, Jesus died to save his elect. Jesus died to redeem for himself a church, but I think that he died for, for other reasons as well. So the limited atonement person, he'll say, that's the only reason that Jesus died for, to secure the salvation of the elect. And again, while others could look on, they could say, well, yes, amen, but I think there's more. You know, I'll often say about uh, Kilo, my oldest son, that uh, he is my favorite 11-year-old, and that's true. That doesn't mean that I don't like other 11-year-olds. That doesn't mean that I don't have a favorite 8-year-old or a favorite 9-year-old. It just means that he is my favorite 11-year-old. And while we can say, yes, Jesus died for the church to, to justify them, to bring them to himself, I think we can also say there are other reasons uh, that Jesus had for his death. In 1 Timothy 4.10, uh, Paul says, For it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have a fixed hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So there's a special sense in which the church has um, been redeemed by the death of Christ. And that's... Um, not to say that we're, we're universalists, right? We're not universalists. We don't believe that everybody goes to heaven, but that Jesus died in a special way for the believers. However, we have to still struggle with the, the first aspect of that sentence, that Jesus is the Savior of all men. And so a couple of other reasons for which Jesus died. I'll give it to you just two real quickly. Um, he died to provide a legitimate offer of salvation. Uh, scripture presents a universal offer of salvation. Romans 10.13 says that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How is it that God can say, go ahead and, and believe on me, go ahead and call on me, unless that salvation were actually possible? Uh, imagine for a moment if I were to offer to give you the, the Statue of Liberty, knowing that you don't have a place to, to put the Statue of Liberty and would therefore have to refuse my offer. I think that you would still be able to, to call into question the legitimacy of my offer, the genuine nature of my offer to give you the Statue of Liberty because I don't own the Statue of Liberty. 
Um, but um, God does give this legitimate offer of salvation to all men. And Paul here, shortly, he's going to go on to identify your role and my role in uh, being ministers of reconciliation, in reconciling a lost and dying world to a holy and righteous God. Are we to alter our, our gospel message by qualifying it, by offering caveats, saying, I know that you're a, a sinful human being, and I know that you need to be in reconciliation with, with a holy, righteous God. Perhaps if you are one of the elect, then um, Jesus may have died for you. I don't know if that's true, but maybe you are part of the elect. Um, that's not how I do my evangelism. That's not how I see Paul doing his evangelism in the Bible. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, it is a trustworthy statement. How trustworthy? It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the message of the gospel that Paul preached. Uh, Jesus' death also permits God to justly condemn those who reject Jesus. One of the most popular groups of verses in the Bible is John three sixteen through 18, which says that, um, what does it say? John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? And then he goes on, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the, the death of Christ allows him to uh, justly condemn those who do not believe in Jesus. So did Jesus die for the elect? Absolutely. But did he do more than that? I think so. So um, you can find solid Christians on, on both sides of the debate. Even within this room, I think there are Christians who take both positions. Uh, this isn't a, a doctrine that we need to divide over. We can still maintain unity, having different opinions on the scope of the, uh, the atonement, who Jesus died for. Um, the only differentiation is those who are more right and those who are, are less correct. And I will let you be the judge of what group to put under what heading. But uh, let's go back to our text now, having taken that theological detour and um, address what's going on in verses 14 and 15. And somewhat ironically, even though I am not, um, I don't call myself a, a limited atonement person, I, I don't agree with their understanding of the Bible. Um, I do agree with their understanding of this passage. Uh, in verse 15, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. I do believe that that's speaking of the church, of those who have died to their sin, those who have died to themselves. In Romans 6, 10 through 11, Paul says, for the death that he died, Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a, a mark of a Christian, somebody who has died to themselves. I think that's who is in view here in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, Paul says later, whoever wants to, or Jesus, um, in our passage that we looked at this morning in our Sunday school class, he said that whoever wants to uh, save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they will find it. 
uh, John Calvin. He said, Christ died for us that we might die to ourselves. To die to ourselves is to live to Christ, to renounce ourselves, that we may live to Christ. For Christ redeemed us with this view that he might have us under his authority as his peculiar possession. I think that that is what, what Paul is getting at. That he is saying that I have been crucified with Christ and uh, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is really what he's getting at in these, following, in these last two verses. That the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. We've realized that, that we've died with Christ. Yes, Christ died for all, but we have died to ourselves. We have died to our sin. And that he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is what the, the love of Christ compels us to do. This is what the love of Christ controls us to do. This is the result of regeneration, that we should be, as, as Paul was, ambitious about pleasing God, that we should be uh, persuading men because of the love of Christ, because he has shown us love. We are to go out and we are to persuade other men with that same love. It should be natural for us to be beside ourselves for God, to be out of our mind crazy for God. That should be common and natural. And having been bought by his blood and, and saved from our sin, uh, being found in him, we ought to be controlled by the love of Christ that is within us. I think that is what, what Paul is saying, that the love of Christ controls us. That he is controlled, he is motivated by the, the fear of knowing who God is and the the strength and the, the honor, the majesty of God, and the fact that these people that he loved, they're going to stand before him one day. But even so, he is still compelled and motivated and controlled by the love of God because he has a, a desire and a compassion for them. He has a care and a burden for them. And you and I as Christians, we ought to do the same. We ought to be uh, controlled by the love of God. That ought to change our lives and drive us to uh, seek to honor him in all that we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we should do for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would give us that desire within ourselves that we would be so changed and so moved by your love that we wouldn't be able to, to go on to live our lives as we once did, but that we would be known as your children, your representatives, that we could rightly go out and we could uh, be your ambassadors, that we could uh, be your ministers of reconciliation, reconciling a lost world to you, a holy and a pure God. Help us to do that, uh, speaking the truth in love, uh, representing you well. Amen.